Forget machine learning. I'm interested in machine generosity and machine ambiguity. To print or not to print? That is the question. The Book of Derivatives. Economics. Are you some sort of communist? Uh, no. <laughs> Flat denial. I mean, if one might say, your mother, a.k.a. your motherboard, probably told you it's a sin to import a lie. Or, and we can't be afraid of that. Short stories can confront this ambiguity. They can take it on. In fact, I would argue that that's exactly what they should be doing. If people read something in their... So let's go tackle some ambiguities right here. Hello and welcome to the Fictionable Podcast with me, Richard Lee, in the company of a seasonally appropriate head cold. We started off this winter series with Linda Mannheim, who respectfully declined my invitation to book club. I don't really have that much to say about Jane Austen. (laughs) Then we heard from Richard Smith, who revealed the detailed research process that underpins his historical fiction. It's a vibe. It's not a history, it's a vibe. And it's just what works for the story. I'm a big believer. Last week, Ariel Markin Jack solved the riddle of the Philosopher's Stone. Mm, I like to think of it as being like alchemy. You take this pasty base matter and you turn it into gold. <laughs> After this, we'll bring this series to a close with Liam Hogan. But this week, we welcome Robert Newworth, who joined us down the line from Brooklyn. He began with a short reading from his story, The Disambiguation. To print or not to print? That is the question. The Book of Derivatives. It'll never be known how this has to be told in firstness, immediacy, or in secondness, which defines itself in relation to immediacy. Using thirdness, which mediates between firstness and secondness, or continually inventing modes that will serve for nothing. If one might say, your mother, a.k.a. your motherboard, probably told you it's a sin to import a lie. Or import the origin of the family, private property, and the state from Marx Engels' collected works. Quote, the lower limit in each of the five classes was, one, 100,000 asses, two, 75,000 asses, three, 50,000 asses, four, 25,000 asses, five, 11,000 asses. And especially, hallelujah, this document has been auto-saved. What the hell? For to assert that line from Engels is to raise a genuine non-local issue, and maybe even one of global import. Deaf class asses. Asses as in donkeys? Or as in Backsides, behinds, booties, bottoms, bums, buns, buttocks, butts, cabooses, cans, cheeks, derrieres, fannies, glutes, heinies, keisters, patooties, rear ends, rumps, seats, tails, tuckuses, tushies, yams. Or as in idiots and jerks. Or as in ridiculous people. Or as in people who are easily duped or taken advantage of a.k.a. suckers, or import Deadwood complete scripts, cocksuckers, or as in pompous nasty people, a.k.a. shitheads, 
are also, weirdly, again from Deadwood, cocksuckers. The problem is, given what's out there in the world, which is the data set, it's basically impossible not to import a lie. Because the same stuff can be true at one time and false at another. Or your perception can be true, that is, an accurate report of what you experienced in the moment, but at the same time mistaken and so false, and even a lie, though you may still think it true. Or take this example, condiments enhance flavor, but they also add flavor, and at the same time distort and change the flavor, which then is the true flavor and which the lie. The truth is, nothing is intrinsically true, which makes everything a potential untruth. You can call this the big lie. And anyway, as Alfred North Whitehead said, import process and reality, in the real world, it is more important that a proposition be interesting than that it is true. The importance of truth is that it adds to interest. So, let's get interesting. Is this guy on the level? What has Alfred North Whitehead got to do with ketchup? And what happens if I hit print after all? To find out, visit fictional.world and subscribe. You'll get access to the rest of Robert Neuwirth's The Disambiguation and a year's worth of exclusive short stories and comics from all around the world for £20. The Disambiguation is a riot of digital energy on the page, fizzing with lists, code and interventions ducking in from every side. But when Neuwirth reads it, it almost sounds like a meditation. So I asked him whether that's what it sounds like in his head. I spent a lot of time reading it to myself. And, you know, it's kind of a mashup. There are bits and pieces of other people's works. Julio Cortazar and Charles Sanders Peirce, the firstness, secondness, thirdness, and a bunch of other people who aren't mentioned, and plus the people who are mentioned. I wanted it to be plausible as a machine thinking. I didn't think the machine would be completely out of control. I think this is normal for a machine. And so the machine is kind of working through this material as it's spewing it out on the page. And yeah, I thought it was kind of meditative in that sense. It feels on the page to me like it's constructed on computer time, as if the clock speed of the prose should be measured in gigahertz. But I mean, is it something of the calm at the centre of the gigaflops? I would imagine that computers are actually perfectly calm, even though they're working in this storm of human time, super fast compared to what we could do. So I envision them never being uncalm, even when they're doing something completely unexpected and bizarro. It just makes sense to them. It's their world. So why would it be anything other than calm? It's fun to imagine a computer getting nervous or a computer getting riled up. But I don't quite see it. It's more a sense of mulling. So where does a story like The Disambiguation begin? What's the source? 
I don't know. I mean, look, the process on this story and a number of other stories I've written recently was that I had some one-liners which appeared in my notebooks for a very long time. And I began to feel like I was going crazy. The one-liners were basically, hallelujah, this document has been auto-saved, and to print or not to print. You know, I was doing all sorts of things to try to play with them, and I never found the form. I really did begin to think that I was going crazy, that I had all these things that were plaguing me, and I could never create a structure for them to reside in. They were just in my head. I have, like, lists in my notebooks over and over and over again of these things. They're sort of ideas or little lines that make sense or something. Well, initially, the idea was there are a bunch of stories about economics, this one's not exactly about economics, but there's a lot of economics involved in the world of creating artificial intelligences and large language models. And I just didn't know how to put them together. Then forms began coming to me. There was a story that was written entirely in footnotes. I hadn't read Ballard, but that's sort of, you know, an unconscious reference to Ballard, I guess. There's a story from the point of view of a patent troll which is written as a legal notice. So there's these weird forms that I'm trying to put these fictional stories in. And this became one. You know, I bought a textbook on Python and tried to teach myself Python. Long before I wrote the story, I was saying, I write these koans in my notebooks. One of the koans was, forget machine learning. I'm interested in machine generosity and machine ambiguity. And machine, yeah, if we really want to talk about machines as intelligences, then what are the markers of intelligence as we think of them in human terms? The markers of intelligence are often the ability to hold contradicting thoughts at the same time or to deal with ambiguities in thoughts. That, I think, spawned the story. So it was that idea, that realisation, rather than shuffling things around on a page... Well, I mean, I did a bunch of shuffling things around on the page. The story started out completely differently than it ended up. I was playing with Samuel Beckett's uh, How It Is, right? He uses PIM, and I substituted print. And so I was before print, with print, after print. It was almost too much. I wanted to be the now. And then the challenge of being sort of at post-print. I don't know. I mean, it was just kind of talking to myself in some way. And what about all this Python? I mean, you're not some kind of programmer. No, not at all. The first conceit was that I wanted to write the story that it was a plausible program. <laughs> um, and I failed miserably in that. I'm not cut out to be a programmer. I have lots of problems with languages that aren't language in that sense. I mean, I know Python is a language, but the grammar of it uses words in different ways than we use words in English. Sadly, the programming languages seem to be English. So I failed miserably. But that was the initial conceit. Let's write this so it could be actually executed. I guess that's a Georges Perec kind of thing. And Ulipo kind of will remove all the E's. Or... It's quite the constraint, though, that it has to actually... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I failed. <laughs> you, know, it, uh, you know, someone better than me could possibly, maybe a machine, could possibly write that story. But I couldn't. 
and I had to own my failure for a long time and then decide that I could do these embedded Python commands in the story and that that would have to serve. The story pivots on the realisation that print is the commandment that points most directly outside the digital body. Right. Is that how you see it, a demonstration of the world outside the system? Well, it came to me in the writing of the story. I had no idea that the story was going to hinge on that. And it just occurred that, you know, there are these two moments of outsiderdom. One is the large language model that is the input that exists outside. And the other is print. Everything else can be controlled by the digital world. You know, you don't need an output in that sense. You know, it mirrors in some way the human experience, right? We're born into a world. We don't get to choose the world we're born into. It just happens. You know, this is the existential thing. Existence precedes essence, right? So you were born into a world and we have to cope with that world. And that world has certain cultural things and certain other things, you know, some of which are impositions and some of which are intrinsic. And then we have to do things in the world, produce create, externalize ourselves, which seems to be the meaning of life in some way. And metaphorically, that's the same thing, I guess, for machines. And we have to deal with this discomfort that we might have about all this otherness that exists in the world, just like the machine has to deal with the otherness that exists in the input and the output. Must any programming language that includes this command to print necessarily contain the seeds of its own destruction? Sure, I think that's, that's built in. We here are the puppet masters because the languages are written by us. The deep structures are created by us. Not by me, because I don't know how to do this stuff, but someone <laughs> is doing it and we're using it. So yes, I think existentially, if artificial intelligence is a thing, of necessity, if we want it to be self-conscious, has to look at this. It reminds me kind of of Gödel's incompleteness theorem, that any system rich enough to contain number theory contains true statements that it's impossible to prove. You know, I could go there. Um, <laughs> I, I hadn't thought of that, but sure. This happened after I wrote the story, but we've seen this over the past couple of months with... ChatGPT putting out false information in answer to queries. So there is this built-in sort of weirdness. I'm not sure that I would say it's either true or false, but it's weirdness. And why it happens, I'm not sure anyone really knows. When you guys contacted me about publishing the uh, story, The Disambiguation, I picked up an old book I had bought and never looked at. The Philosophy of Artificial Intelligence, I think it's called. I think it's an Oxford or Cambridge paperback. And it had an essay by the philosopher Daniel Dennett in which he talks about frame problems, which worked with the use of the word frame. I hadn't even thought of this when I was writing the story. But, you know, so a frame problem is if you really look at all the actions embedded in any human action, let's take the action he uses, which is going to your kitchen to make yourself a midnight snack. You can prove the impossibility of doing that because look at all the information that you have to have embedded in that action. 
you have to know what a refrigerator is. And you have to know that the doors open in a particular way. And you have to know what's inside the refrigerator. And you have to recognize bread and recognize turkey and recognize mayonnaise. And then you have to know what a knife is and how to open the jar and how to scoop the mayo. All of this means that as a set of instructions, making a midnight snack is absolutely impossible because you can always forget something. And that instruction will not be there, and therefore the midnight snack collapses. And that kind of limitation is, what do you call it? It's like a, uh, an insecurity or a... a uh, Vulnerability. Yeah, is implicit in any program and any computer language, and, and I suppose even in us. And yeah, here we are, eating our chicken sandwich. Yeah, you know, we do it, and we don't think about it. We don't disambiguate all those things. So part of the point of the story is that disambiguation is a very inhuman way of doing things. We don't do this. So whatever intelligence, artificial intelligence is, if it is operating by disambiguation, it's operating in a non-human way. We keep expecting, because we anthropomorphize these things, artificial intelligence is to be human but they're not, they're inhuman. You know, in the same way that it was this great uh, moment when Caruana was playing Carlson. And there was a moment when Caruana was winning, but he couldn't find it, right? It was a 30 move out, approximately, position that created something called Zugzwang, which in chess is a forced move that requires your opponent to make a move that will put him invulnerability. The computers found this, but not a single analyst said, I found it. They all looked at it and said, no, this is deeply, deeply, deeply inhuman. No human could ever find this. And of course, Caruana didn't find it and the game ended in a draw. These are things that computers can do, but we can't. And maybe that's because of this different model of cognition. If it's not disambiguating, it's like not prejudging these long series of possible outcomes and uh, discarding them. I want to ask about a second person a little bit. Who's this you you're addressing? <laughs> I talk to myself a lot. <laughs> I really do. I walk down the street. People must think that I'm, you know. I think when I was writing it, I really thought the uh, machine was starting to talk to itself. There's a weird way I've been spooling thoughts about this, too. One of the markers of human intelligence is talking to yourself. Um, <laughs> you know, this is the indicator of self-consciousness because we can externalize ourselves. What does that say about the self? That we can be multiple selves in some sense? Because who is the self that's talking to the self and who is the self that's receiving the talking to? And how are they all the same? So there's a little bit of anthropomorphism, I suppose, in that, but I saw the machine talking to itself. The story also circles around questions of control and economics. Are you some sort of communist? Uh, no. <laughs> a flat denial. I mean, I've certainly been exposed to it. You know, I am uh, what they used to call in New York, although no one knows what it means anymore, a red diaper baby, <laughs> which meant that my mother in her youth, was a card-carrying communist. She never wanted me to say that to anyone, but she's dead now, so I can say that. <laughs> and, 
She was a communist simply because her parents escaped the pogroms in 1905 and came here. And if you were anti-Tsarist, you were pro-Bolshevik. Went without question. But no, I'm not a communist. But I recognize that capitalism is a weird story that we tell ourselves. And if we were going to go out in the world and say, let's create the best possible way that the world should be organized, would you really come up with working for the man and individual profit? I mean, I'm not arguing for utopia, but it does strike me as an odd story. So to that extent, I certainly question the nostrums of the market system. And an artificial intelligence would too. Whether they're getting paid in Bitcoin or something, I mean, it's not perhaps the you in the disambiguation, the disambiguator, the angel of death, should be paid in notional currency. But for a machine intelligence, is it worth anything? Would they really have a use for it? We do, but maybe they don't. You've been reporting on shantytowns and the informal economy for more than 20 years. Yeah. How has that altered your perception of economics and indeed life in New York City? Massively. I mean, I spent a couple of years living in shantytowns. That was my methodology for my first book. It was an amazing privilege, first of all. But, you know, when I tried to sell the book initially, there were a lot of editors who said to me, oh, this is a this is a terribly sad story. No one would be interested in this. And to me, the idea of making it a sad story reduces people to their material conditions. The sad story is that this wonderful capitalist system puts them in those conditions. You can eat in the rural area, but you can't make any money. And you need money to live in the society, pay school fees, do all these other things, buy things that you might not be growing. And someone in your family migrates to the city for work where you can get work, but you can't get a place to live. So you can live in the rural area, but not work. And you can make money in the urban area, but you can't live. So we force people into these horrible interstices. And then we define them as somehow wrong for finding coping mechanisms, which is what the growth of shanty towns is, essentially. Where do we expect people to live if we don't allow them to live? And these are people who even have multiple jobs. You know, one of the things I had to confront in India when I was living in Bombay, Mumbai, as it's called these days, you know, I met one lady who lived with her daughters under a flyover, under a road overpass. So no walls, no shanty at all. And she had two jobs. She did cooking and childcare for two different families, one in the morning and one in the afternoon. And both of those salaries combined were still not enough to afford a home. And I didn't talk with the people she worked for because I didn't want to get her into any trouble. And she didn't want to get into any trouble. But I talked with a lot of families in middle-class areas, and they would say to me, aren't you scared living in the shantytown? Isn't there a tremendous amount of crime? You know, and I would sit there and I would think, you're employing a shanty dweller to cook for you, clean for you, drive your car, <laughs> um, you know, and, and you're not worried about criminality. 
So why is there this fascination with how bad these people are when, in fact, you're relying on their good nature? Because they could be ripping you off right and left. So it totally changed my view of the system, of the massive privilege that it is to not be living in the open air under a highway flyover. And yet also the incredible similarity. We're all just people. It was an exercise in humility because I went to all these places and I was welcomed. And would I be half as welcoming if someone from India or uh, Lagos, Nigeria, or wherever in the world moved to my neighborhood, to an apartment next door to me? Would I be half as welcoming? No, I don't think so. You know, I'm just not as good a person. People helped me out, refused money, they welcomed me. You know, it was just extraordinary. And I still have people that I am in contact with. They are much better at keeping in touch than I am. They're angry at me because I don't keep in touch. They do. And they value the connection. It made me a different person. And it changed the way I view the market because there are victims of the market. And there are things that in the lovely stories that we tell ourselves we don't take into account. And we don't see the level of cooperation and generosity that exists underneath all this purported focus on profit. So I became a different person. And the things I write about became different. I want to ask how your work as a journalist and indeed this kind of wider project understanding these informal economies, informal ways of living, how that feeds into your fiction? I don't know. I've always kept the two worlds kind of separate. Obviously, I wouldn't be writing what I call short stories about economics if there wasn't some bleed through. Maybe this is a fault, but maybe it's a feature, not a bug. What it did is I moved away from traditional narrative and more towards the kinds of things that the disambiguation represents. The world is a non-narrative place. There are stories that we can tell, and those stories have a kind of narrative, but there are always fractures in the narrative and places where your complacent narrative blows up. True confession here. I wrote a thing, a one-liner, you know, many things, as I said, appear in my notebooks. And I wrote a one-liner that as soon as I wrote it, I said, I can never tell anyone. But I'm going to tell you because, yeah, I should be upfront about this. But the one-liner was, I never wanted to tell the truth. And that's why I became a nonfiction writer. Obviously, it's a little bit facetious and it's provocative. Every work of journalism is someone's take, slice. They can be more or less truthful, but... In the end, what you put in and what you leave out, because something is always left out, makes the story incomplete and shades the story in different directions. And we can't be afraid of that. Short stories can confront this ambiguity. They can take it on. In fact, I would argue that that's exactly what they should be doing. If people read something and are left totally complacent, then I would argue the stories failed in some way. You know, if it just 
smooths our preconceived notions, you know, it hasn't done its job. Maybe that's not what beach reading is all about or thrillers or crime novels. But on the other hand, the best thrillers and crime novels have that ambiguity built into them. I try to change the world. Another koan. You know, yes, I want to change the world, but not unless it's fun. Sure, I'm writing to change the world, but I have to enjoy what I'm doing. Yeah, I want to make a difference. Absolutely. I want every scrap of what I do. You know, this sounds like hubris because who among us can make a difference? You know, there's six plus billion people in the world, you know, and I'm only writing in English. But sure, yeah, I want to make a difference. I want to change things. I want things to be different. We'll keep changing the world and having fun right here. That was Robert Neuwirth. To read The Disambiguation, as well as exclusive stories from Linda Mannheim, Richard Smith, Ariel Markin-Jack and Liam Hogan, head to fictionable.world. For £20, you'll get a year's worth of exclusive short stories and comics from all over the world, which you or your AI can enjoy on your mobile, tablet or laptop computer. You'll also be able to import stories from our ever-increasing data set, with fiction and comics from Sarah Hall, Evie Wilde, Yann Lianqueur, Lizzie Stewart and many more. And there's also our blog, which you can read without subscription, where you'll find the Eisner Award-winning comic artist Peter Cooper's Hymn to the Insect Kingdom. We love hearing what you make of our podcast, our blog and our stories, so at us on Mastodon, Instagram or Twitter. Or drop us an email on info at fictionable.world. You can send us your thoughts in audio to that same address, and who knows, you might just wind up on a fictionable podcast. Next time, Liam Hogan tells us the secret of a successful writing career. I don't break the rules, but I don't always follow them dot by dot. And reads from Backstory. With thanks to Robert Neuwirth, that's all for this week. So from me, Richard Lee, my head cold, and everybody here at Fictionable, thanks for listening, and goodbye. Thank you.